Where do I start? How do I train recall? How long should we work on healing before moving on? Is crate training really that important? We hear these questions all the time and there's one answer that will help with all of them. The complete step-by-step dog training course found at Standing Stone Supply. They break down the what, when, where, and how to train your own dog from eight weeks to one year old. They've got it all laid out for you down to even the daily activity checklist to keep you and your puppy on track. Check out standingstonesupply.com and remember to use code GDIY to save 10%. What's the dog doing in the house? How does this follow you to the vet? How does this, how does everything in life become an obstacle course? Um, so people see the obstacle course as like this symbolic are not symbolic, but just these physical pieces of obstacles where we want and how we teach it is to think about everything in life becomes an obstacle course that you do with your dog, getting your dog out of the crate, getting your dog through your front door. Everything becomes a mental obstacle in your world and the dog's world. Have you ever shot a bird that just keeps on flying and you're standing there saying, I swear I hit that bird? Well, good news. Maybe it might not be you, but rather your shotgun. Go check out UplandGunCompany.com and construct the perfect shotgun that is not only built to your exact physical specifications, but your preferred looks as well. To some people, a shotgun not only has to perform, but look good while doing it also. Upland Gun Company has made this process super convenient and surprisingly affordable when you consider all of the completely customizable features. Get your shotgun order submitted today so you're standing there with your dog saying fetch, rather than standing there still saying, I couldn't have missed that bird. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of GDIY presented by Standing Stone Supply. My guest this week is Sonny Peacarts and Jordan Wells that uh, you guys might have heard on some other podcasts here recently that they developed uh, what is being called The Method. And so I'm excited to have you guys on. I appreciate you guys making time for me. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. So let's just go ahead and kind of start off. I told you guys I, I kind of want to do a, a start to finish what what kind of motivated you guys to create or start your guys' own method and, and promote it that way. Uh, but I want to start from the very beginning and then go all the way through. And so I'd like, you know, one of you guys kind of introduce yourselves, kind of say what got you, how long you've been in the gun dog world, your, your kind of training philosophy and influences and, and process leading up to now. And then, uh, then we can just kind of go down the path uh, after that. Okay, I'll let Sonny go first because, you know, his story leads into mine. Yeah, so uh, we were, uh, let's see, probably 2000 is when we started uh, a commercial operation. Um, obviously, my the big influence for me has been uh, Rick Smith. Um, you know, from there, um, we ended up where we are today with the, with the start of the method. That uh, for me, the start of the method was nothing more than just frustration working with my uh, with the clientele over the years as they've changed with trying to to help to help them to reach them to help them better understand the dog. Um, you know, and that's kind of where we ended up with what we've got today. And and so you've been doing the Smith method from the very start. Is that what you said you got started around 2000? Has that been the Smith method pretty much the entire time up until recently? 
yeah, I was just like everybody else, you know, I was, I was scratching and clawing to find better ways to work dogs. Um, paging through, I believe at the time was probably a, um, old pointing dog journal and, uh, seen a, a, a Smith seminar, um, seen a Hickok seminar for some reason, went with the Smith side and hit my first foundation seminar. Uh, probably in 98, uh, maybe, maybe even 97. Um, yeah, and just ran with it from there. And Jordan, where did you kind of fall in? You said that Sonny's story kind of leads into you. Is that kind of something similar to you to where you got, got started in the Smith method and then just kind of found Sonny? Um, I started running my own personal short airs for just kind of enjoyment, um, hunting, and then it turned into hunt tests. And then when I graduated UConn College, I was looking for a job um, and then led me into Quinnabog Kennels um, at Shen Broom's place and worked there for almost a year before. Same story as, you know, I was having trouble up there. She was having trouble. And the call went out to Rick Smith that, you know, we need some help. This is what we're seeing. And his response was everybody else is saying the same thing. The people are changing, which is causing the dogs to change. So that led into Rick coming out and working with us a little bit. And then Sonny coming out right after that. And then I got sent out to Sonny, and that's how our relationship started. Um, and I worked there for about four years, left on my own, went to Long Island, trained dogs on my own for four years there, and then came back to Connecticut where we grew up and now running commercial operation here. And so it sounds like both of you guys obviously have your foundation or, or roots within the Smith method, but it sounds like both you and, and if I understood you correctly, Jordan, uh, Jennifer had the, uh, the the same concerns as well of trying to figure out how to not not so much as train the dogs, but make it make sense to the owners of the dog and and really that relationship or bond between the owner and the dog. Did I understand that correctly? Yes. Yeah, we were we were hitting roadblocks and we were searching for what is going on? We need a better way. Um, so Rick came out and said, let me do a foundation seminar. And we did it. And that's when the whole kennel kind of went in the direction of the Smith method. And I think that was like 2014, 2015. Uh, Rick started getting involved up there. And so both of you, you know, Sonny, you say you've been doing it for roughly, I don't know, 20 plus years, 25 years, somewhere in there with the Rick Smith uh, uh, influence. And then Jordan, you just said that, you know, it's been, I don't know, seven, eight years, somewhere in that ballpark. So if both of you guys kind of found some of the information or at least uh, the knowledge to, to get you guys going within the Smith method, where, where was it that you guys felt there were gaps or, or holes or something that needed to be addressed for you guys to kind of step out away from the Smith method and kind of create your own version of it, so to speak? Sure. Um, so to back that up just a little bit, I got a call uh, from Rick to follow up with what Jordan was saying when he got called in to do the uh, foundation seminar. Um, I believe, at least what I remember of the conversation, he was frustrated with the, the people were frustrated, the dogs were frustrated, everybody was everybody was frustrated. So they, uh, to try to just get everybody back on track and to get everybody loosened back up, they went and jumped on some of the agility equipment. Um, Rick had called me that night and said there was, you know, he's seen something that happened here. It put, it put uh, some air on the people, put some air on the dogs, and things were clicking. So wasn't very long after that. I got sent, uh, I grabbed a flight and went down to, uh, to see what was going on. Um, <clears throat> from there, met Jordan, and then just almost instantly, uh, what I seen was there was no point of contact built on the dogs. So the dogs did not have any meat 
means of understanding anything. Um, from there, uh, me and Jordan built that relationship. Um, that's a whole other story in itself. Uh, he was like a sponge. He had just phenomenal technique and the ability to read the dog and was crazy hungry for knowledge. So just the two of us started jacking with dogs and, and messing with leads and working with some agility equipment and things started to click. I mean, dogs started to respond. And that's kind of the start of, uh, you know, what today we would call call the method. It, it started way back then. So, uh, you know, I went to my first Smith Method seminar a couple months ago up in Clayton, New York, up at uh, Webfoot Outdoors. And uh, it, it was really eye-opening in a lot of ways. And, and what you just described, especially with the agility course, you know, I got to witness that with Rick myself. And I got to interview Rick afterwards and really kind of pick his brain. And what you guys are saying, you know, that that seemed to still be like his main uh, concern or or observation in the bird dog world as a whole right now is really it's it's not so much the accessibility to training resources or accessibility to just resources in general on on uh you know places to train or how to train it's it's really more focused on the individual owner and handler's approach to their dog and not having that relationship built up so you know, you both of you guys have kind of said that you guys were getting frustrated in that it led to phone calls with Rick and trying to figure it out. What were some of the holes or gaps or what were some of the uh, actions that the handlers were showing you guys or not showing you that that really raised those red flags for you guys to really start trying to figure out a new approach? For me back then, it was the the, the people not understanding why we were going through the paces, um, didn't understand the bird the bird work, didn't understand the check cord, sure as heck didn't understand the command lead um, and how to and how to just to apply it. Uh, so that's where my frustration came in is to try to you know we we would always talk about let's break it down into simpler steps, break it down into simpler steps. Uh, we kept breaking it down into the simplest of simple, and we were still struggling which is kind of where Jordan's uh, the tailgate talk has been groundbreaking as far as really getting it broke down to help the people better understand. So the frustration for me came from uh, the dogs didn't really change that much. They were still the same dog, but the people had changed and the people just flat out did not understand the animal. Uh, so whatever's changed in our, in our society, they just didn't understand the animal. And the two of us were on a mission to try to best help the people. So in your opinion, what what do you guys contribute that to in terms of why they didn't really understand the dogs as much as they maybe did in the past? It seems kind of interesting to me that with, you know, let's from the year 2000 on to today, we've had more and more access to information. You would think with more access to information, they would be able to figure this out. And Sonny, you make a good point in that to where you know, you you can try and simplify things and break it down in incremental steps. But in some things, in some cases, there's only so many steps you can break something down into. And if it's still not clicking, it's just not clicking. So like, what, what do you guys contribute the fact that you guys were just kind of seeing a disconnect between owners and dogs that you guys feel wasn't there, you know, 20 plus years ago? Yeah, I think the, the I call them the modern day people. Um, I'm I'm young, so I got to see this transition hanging around Rick and Sonny a lot, and then kind of diving into professionally dog training at a time of a, a huge transition of the dogs were leaving kennels and moving into the house. the The breeding was changing, the genetics were changing, um, the purpose for the dogs were changing. So it made the people the biggest concern. 
So I think the people understanding the dog, the way how to read them, how to understand what the dog needs, what they thrive off of, the mental stimulation, the physical stimulation, all the ingredients into owning a dog, people started becoming more and more disconnected from that. And then more of the modern day or, you know, the the media kind of represents what this dog should be and kind of what they need. And we kind of humanize them to a point. And then all of a sudden, all these dogs are becoming unruly. And I think it's a huge lack of understanding of how people used to get a dog and understand the dog to what's getting passed down of what's normal with a dog, um, what's kind of expected with a dog. All those expectations are changed um, for the dogs. So I think that's what's making the hardest part is the people understanding the dog and not being able to communicate with them or not understand what that dog is truly needing to be successful. So that was the biggest disconnect I saw in seminars is it was all about technique of how to hold, you know, a leash, how to apply the leash, but we are missing the whole mindset of the dog and truly how to read them, how to help them, how to connect to them, how to get them through their frustrations, through their stresses, through their anxieties. Um, so we had to break things down to such small pieces where people can start really understanding their dogs. Um, I just did a private lesson this morning. It was a guy that came to our seminar and he said, the biggest thing from this seminar, and he's been to a lot of them, was it was taught why we do something. And then there was a huge understanding of kind of why we teach the way we do. And it's all for the dog and the understanding of it, where other seminars and other techniques um, just kind of focus on that technique. So I think the biggest part about this was the understanding and kind of the reading of the dog has been has been lost through the years of dogs. That That is a really interesting uh situation as you as you point out it's there uh, roughly around the time you guys are saying that you kind of kind of notice the the change in people was when the dogs more or less on average moved in from the kennels into the house and so you would think with people living with the dogs more often and being around the dogs that they would understand dog behavior and how dogs learn or communicate more effectively, but it kind of seems like it went the opposite way to where it kind of morphed into what, you know, we call the, the fur baby mentality to where instead of treating a dog like a dog and just including it within your lifestyle, we almost started trying to teach or, or include the dog as if it's another, you know, human being or a baby within the house or a child. And, you know, obviously, you know, there was some good in that to where overall, I'd say that dogs were better well cared for, but we also lost something in that transition to where the dogs kind of forgot how to be dogs and people forgot how to actually treat them like dogs. Exactly. I agree with that 100%. Yeah, for me, I, for me, I started to see the, uh, the change with some of the social media. Uh, the, web, the websites got real popular and people stopped spending time outside with the dog and were spending more time on, on laptops and cell phones. And that's just a, a bigger problem as a whole. It's not, you're not even talking about dogs. You're just talking about life in general where people just kind of went inside and never left. It, yeah, exactly. That, that's where I started to see the big change where people started to lose touch with their dog. They just, they weren't spending the time with them, you know, with, uh, with just trial and error, you know, let's, let's, let's try to learn from the animal. It was, it was learning from, well, here we are. It's learning from a podcast, learning from, uh, from Facebook, social media, somebody's website, and then trying to apply it without ever really learning the animal. 
And, you know, I think that that is another good point that that you bring up to where we hear all the time, spend time with your dog, right? As, a, as if, you know, if you're open to it, you're, you're going to naturally kind of learn what that dog's thinking or doing and learn more about it. But just kind of in the sense of, you know, uh, people have a, a disconnect within their own families to where like, oh, yeah, I'm spending time with my husband or wife or spouse or whatever. And they're just sitting on the couch watching TV with them in the room. It's not really spending time with them. You, you, you just happen to be in the same vicinity. And so a lot of people here spend time with your dog. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm spending time with my dog. I'm watching football on Sunday and my dog's on the dog bed over there in the corner or in the recliner more often than not, probably. And so they kind of for better or worse, just kind of see it as, well, I'm spending time with my dog, so I'm doing the right thing. But they're not really putting it in perspective to where like, yeah, but that dog has a purpose and that purpose is not to lounge inside the house and watch football. That dog's purpose is out in the field and doing what dogs do. Sure, exactly. So let's contrast that aspect as as I, I would agree with you to where, you know, people's mentality and just how they look at dogs as a whole is probably the biggest hurdle for a lot of people, especially new people coming into the world. But with both of you guys' foundation in the Smith Method, and, and again, I've only gone to one Smith seminar. It was an intermediate seminar. It wasn't even the foundation seminar. You know, they've they've been doing that for, for decades. I think, you know, Rick's been doing it for, you know, 50 years or something like that. And, you know, they they've kind of built that that entire method based on the chain gang and, and what you guys talk about in the tailgate talk and the kennel, which we're going to get to with Jordan here in a minute. But, you know, as far as I understood it, a lot of that stuff was kind of built into the Smith method already. So like beside the maybe the agility course and adding that in there. Uh, you know, the Smith method is built on understanding how a dog reacts. And if it shows something on the chain gang, it's going to show it out in the field. So where, besides the agility course, was there kind of holes or gaps that you guys felt like we could address better that wasn't getting addressed uh, as properly, I guess you could say, in within the Smith method? The biggest thing for me, learning it and not being brought up in it, um, the biggest disconnect was kind of what happens before you get to the chain, the home life. How do we live with the dog? How do we connect with the dog? Um, what are the structures and boundaries that we put in place at the home? Um, so in our seminars, we're not using the chain. We're starting farther back and we're trying to not make it such an upland program for the beginning of this, but connecting to all dogs and to the people. So I think the biggest differences is not so much a just a bird dog of what the dog does on the chain it'll do in the field it's it's backing it way up to what's the dog doing in the house how does this follow you to the vet how does this how does everything in life become an obstacle course um so people see the obstacle course as like this symbolic or not symbolic but just these physical pieces of obstacles where we want and how we teach it is to think about everything in life becomes an obstacle course that you do with your dog getting your dog out of the crate getting your dog through your front door, everything becomes a mental obstacle in your world and the dog's world. So the biggest disconnect that I saw is what do we do when we go home? And that was the most popular question of where do we go from here? And there is a huge misunderstanding of how do we apply this at home? 
So us backing it way up, there's a lot of more pieces to the whole system um, that we're adding into it to help the people even live with the dog. And that was a huge missing piece for me. And I kept asking those questions to Rick of, hey, I'm having trouble in the field. And I ended up finding myself after talking and saying, you know what? It's in the house that I'm having the trouble. It's in the kennel that I'm having the trouble. So we're trying to back things way up and make a whole program based upon the modern day person relating to the people and then also finding all the spots that people are having trouble with their dogs in just modern day world. Um, Not so much in the field, but, you know, going to the vet or going to Petco to pick out a new toy or just riding in the vehicle. So it's a program based around what the people need. Sonny, do you have anything to add on that? Yeah, I I do. Um, So we were both taught, you know, to, to start with that chain and leave all that baggage, leave all that garbage back on the chain. The reality is, and and I think a big part of our mission is trying to meet the people where the people are at. And the reality of it is the people just aren't using the chain. I mean, the majority of people have house dogs. The majority of people live in a, you know, in a, in a city. Um, It's just not politically correct. You know, we can argue that all we want, but it's, it's not well received to have your dog pounded out, you know, on a tie out. Um, so backing this stuff up to the actual tailgate is, it is definitely what was missed for us. And it drove me almost insane because, um, I was just, uh, I was feeling that we had to do more quicker and Jordan is, you know, he's telling me, no, we need to start here. And, uh, I struggled with that because it's like, man, we're not getting enough done. We're not showing the people enough. And, uh, boy, did I learn, you know, that that's really where <laughs> that's where it started. And then the, 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 where the magic really started at the tailgate is we didn't have any resentment uh, once we did get to whatever it is we were going to do. Even if it was going to the chain from the truck, the resentment was gone because we didn't have to correct or discipline dogs on the chain. We did it right at the tailgate and right at the, at the crate. Um, so when we did get them out, the conversation was already had of, of a little bit of a pecking order. So the dogs had a lot of energy and uh, were not shut down in any way, shape, or form to go do something, whether it be go to the chain or go to some of the coursework. So the biggest piece for that was me was, was uh, the people aren't going to use the chain and then really getting a relationship going with that dog at that crate door because that's where they do spend the most time with them in the morning and in the, in the evening. Um, lack of resentment. The dogs were, they were bought in and ready to go. Very similar like we would have done on the chain, but it was in the crate. And it, and it really kind of, you know, going back to the previous point where in the house, the dogs kind of moved into the house on, on average more so than they're out in the kennel. You know, the Smith method, I don't think anybody's going to sit here and d- discredit the Smith method and, and the results kind of speaks for itself. But as you guys have already addressed and we've already talked about it, when the dogs kind of made their, their entry into the home on an average basis, more so than the kennel, that's, that's where you're kind of missing all the opportunities and the repetitions to build that relationship with your dog that's going to, as you're, as you guys already pointed out, it's going to bleed from the house onto the chain gang onto, into the field. Right. So it's just like, while the Smith method on the chain was probably, that was more, more than enough to kind of cover that, that concern way back when, when everybody, you know, had their dogs in the kennel and they came out during hunting season or trial season, but they weren't living with them day to day. You didn't really have that opportunity. Now, when people are starting to bring those dogs in the house, you're not only missing opportunities to to create that behavior, that learned behavior that we want in our dogs, but you're also kind of teaching negative behavior or the, the behaviors that you're not wanting. The dogs kind of learn that they don't have to do 
what you want them to do because either way, they're still going to get fed and they're going to get that recliner seat. Absolutely, 100%. And so uh, that does make a whole lot of sense and, and it, it it really does kind of uh, put the emphasis on why you guys start at the tailgate, at the at the crate, because you guys can't obviously start at home with these handlers. So it's just kind of, you, you're guys, you guys are just kind of meeting them at the tailgate, showing them the expectation as soon as they pull on the, on the lot. Jordan, what is what are you finding is getting through to the people the most at the tailgate? Because that is kind of your first opportunity or impression to uh, to them to kind of get across to them the importance that hey, while the field is out there and we're training upland dogs and everything, we're going to get to that. But it really starts right here with how we just load and unload the dogs. Yeah, I think it's your if you understand the primal side of a dog is when you go to your dog. The first thing they're going to do is have that conversation of pecking order. It's it's just ingrained in them. You put two dogs together, they're going to conversate. You take them apart for two hours, you put them back together, there's going to be a conversation. So having people think different, act different of going to their dog and thinking about, I'm, I'm going to go have a conversation with them, where that used to be taught on the chain, where I used to see at seminars, and this really clicked last year in Minnesota, where Rick taught Saturday, Sunday, and then he had me teach Monday, Tuesday. It was people were just letting their dogs out of the trucks, they were running wild, and then all of a sudden they were put on the chain where there's this intense confinement. And then they become frustrated and resentful. Um, and then we started correcting them for it. So I saw a huge disconnect of, hey, we missed a bunch of stuff here. We could have got a much better mindset coming out of that crate to look for direction and pay attention. Um, instead, we try to get it done on the chain. Then people go home and they don't understand how valuable that, you know, going to get that dog at the crate in the morning or having that initial conversation for the day kind of snowballs and makes everything after that easier and easier to teach and kind of develop with the dog. So the seminar format is when people come in with their dogs and the dogs are in that that crate in their vehicle. It's their opportunity to start having that conversation just like they would in their home that morning. So it's it's not just the tailgate talk. It's kind of symbolic and goes all the way back into the house and that initial conversation in the morning time. So what we're looking for at that tailgate is to get that dog to start looking for direction, start paying attention to a certain standard, and then to look to us as more of a submissive and dominant type relationship, not in a fear-driven way, but they're open for direction. So primarily, they're going to have a conversation of pecking order at that crate. Um, and we need to understand and be able to see that conversation, make sure that we take that dog out in the right state of mind. Otherwise, if they come out and they're in charge and we get to the ground, we're going to have to use more pressure, more force to try to get things done. So that tailgate opportunity was a huge piece being missed. Um, so that's that's been a huge game changer for people to really learn their dogs, um, be able to read them, watch their facial expressions. Um, you know, it's just literally having a conversation with the dog and the people can see it all happen right in front of them. And, and it's really kind of, you, you're, you're describing kind of what I, what I call just stacking wins. It's the same thing for us on a day-to-day basis. You know, if, if we start the day off by hitting the snooze button and we oversleep, then we're starting the day off with a loss. And that's why people, you know, it's like, get up and make your bed. It's, it's not because you have to make the bed to have a successful day. It's just stack an easy win, kind of get that junk out of the way and kind of get in the groove and and you're, you're kind of in the right mindset. Same thing with the dogs to where if you just get up and you kind of start off at the at the truck, at the crate, you're 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 gonna have that junk out of the way as you're kind of leading down to the chain and you already have a win behind you as you get to the chain. You don't have that resentment because you started off with a loss back at the truck. 
Exactly. And that goes, you know, as far as you want into competition or, you know, going hunting, you know, our excitement, our emotions, whatever, are getting in the way and we rush there and we miss a huge opportunity. And then, you know, the dog goes out in the field and rips the first bird. And it's, you know, that dog already told us they were going to do that back in the crate at the truck. Um, or we go into the vet and the dog is aggressive because we let them jump out of the car and drag us the whole way into the vet or whatever. So a lot of the behaviors that we're seeing that people are dealing with, we can resolve a lot of them, you know, all the way at home, right inside the crate or in the crate in the truck. Um, and then we don't have to deal with them when they come out. Now, what do you say to somebody that shows up and they don't have a crate in the, in the vehicle? Is this, is this crate specific or is it vehicle specific? You know, some people just drive around, they don't have their dogs in a crate. We know that, you know, we advise everybody that, Hey, you need to need to drive with your dog safely, but this is America. They can do what they want. Right. So how do you advise somebody in that, that regard to where that dog's not only just going to try and bust out of the car, but maybe they're just bouncing around the car uncontrolled all the way to the event either way. Um, we get probably maybe between two to five people a seminar without crates. And it's harder to create that mindset that we're looking for to take that dog out. But we still use that car door as the start of the boundary. And if as soon as you go to the door, you go to the kennel door, you put the dog right into an anticipatory mindset. Um, they already know what's going to happen. So if you change that, it switches the dog back to a thinking mindset. So no difference between that front door of your house, the kennel door or the car door, we can use that door to start referencing a mindset to pay attention. So the car door gets treated just like the kennel door and we have to get the dog to to give in there and acknowledge um, and start buying in and looking for direction. Because if we go and touch that car door and they just load up and they're anticipatory, they're really not thinking and paying attention at that point. So we use the car door the same way as the kennel door and we're looking for the same body language, the same facial expressions and acknowledgements that the dog is going to handle coming out of that vehicle. The dog is going to pay attention when they go on that lead. And so the entire time you guys are doing this, this isn't just you guys one-on-one with one person from the seminar going through this process, getting that dog in a receptive and focused mindset. This is, I'm assuming, just like you know any other Smith Method seminar or something. You have everybody getting getting the knowledge by getting to watch numerous people go through this with their dogs. And and that's kind of the value of a seminar is you're not only watching one example with maybe just your one individual dog, you're going to get to see 20 different people all with probably similar or, or completely different reactions from the dog. And so that's going to be that multiplying factor to where you're not, it, you know, instead of learning it or seeing it once, you can see it upwards of, you know, 15, 20 times, however many people are at the seminar. Yeah. And kind of like what you see is after the fourth or fifth dog, everybody says, well, they're doing the same thing as the last dog. And, you know, quickly you start recognizing that no matter the breed, they're all dogs. They all speak the same language. So if one dog does it, the next dog's probably going to do it. And the third dog, and it's just in different intensity levels between the dogs because of their confidence levels, but they all end up doing the same thing. And people really start connecting the dots of how to read a dog at that point. And that was the biggest The biggest hurdle for me learning all this way back was learning how to read that dog. None of it was explained. None of it was talked about. It was just about, you know, he's physically still, that's what you want. But the mentally still part was left out or the physical, you know, the feet aren't moving, but the mind is still moving. You know, all those different connections there were left out. So people can really start seeing about the dog is physically still in the kennel. 
but mentally is outside running around. He's mentally already left. That's that anticipatory. So now they can start seeing, okay, my dog is mentally and physically committed to be still in that kennel and wait for direction. Um, so those, those connections were huge for people when they start being able to recognize that. Sonny, what, what was it that was so, like you said that, you know, you had to be almost sold on starting at the crate at the start of this. So what was it that really clicked for you for it to really make sense or weigh heavy enough for you to realize that, yes, this is absolutely correct. This is where we need to start off at the seminar. Where the magic started for me was was the people know their own their own dog at the crate or the car door. They didn't necessarily know the dog on a tie out. Um, so the, the lights were the red flags were just popping for the people because they could relate to what was going on at that crate door. And then Jordan's demonstration, uh, just due to how he presents himself, the dogs were every single dog was uh, it was magical on how quick that the dog would look to him for instruction and then be able to open up a door or come out with some manners with this very, very open mind uh, to learn. You know, it's it's just the mindset of that animal. Um, and it empowered the people. So the takeaway for me was we were trying to get the dog still, and it was way, way, way bigger than that because we right from the get-go, the first 45 minutes of our seminar, now we've got the people on board because we've empowered them. Um, we've propped them up. They can see it. It's blatantly obvious that they can see it. They can see it in their own dogs. And now they have the knowledge and the uh, the understanding of how to read the behavior and how to successfully get that dog out of the crate. So it really set our seminar up for success within that first half hour of, uh, of our start. About how often do you, do you guys do this? That, you know, how many people are at this seminar that their mind is just blown right at the at the gate? I mean, just coming out of it, starting with the crate, they're just like, oh, wow, I already see a completely different dog just by doing this five, 10 minute dance at the crate door. Yeah, like 100 um, percent, you know, two great gains in a, in a little I don't even know what the car was, but the car was was, was about the same size as the dogs um, and just uh um, you know, the individual that was just loaded <laughs> up with anxiety about, oh my gosh, they're going to come out and we were dealing with aggression and, um, just how she was empowered to be able to literally get some order with that dog right there at the door and bring him out. And, and sure we had issues. Um, but be the, the, the human being empowered to now be strong enough and bold enough and confident enough because of the knowledge on how to interact with the animal. So it, it, it's extremely magical in my opinion. I mean, and I was never against it. It just I always felt like we need to we need to move faster. Just like Jordan said, we always would get to the bird field and then all this stuff was left behind. Um, bless his heart, he forced me to stay in the, you know, to stay in the fight. And uh it it was it's groundbreaking. It's it's magical stuff that happens right there at the crate. And I mean, of course, you know, we all get bird dogs because we love the field. We love the interaction between bird and dogs, but these dogs are are genetically bred for the abilities in the field. You you can argue that a lot of that stuff in the field, if if you kind of know the the right roadmap or or how to go about it, can be a lot easier for some people and a lot of dogs to to learn the field aspect. But meanwhile, the stuff at home and the stuff that you're going to live with day to day more more so than in the field they don't understand it. They don't see it. They don't see the benefit of it. And so it does make all the sense in the world to where it's just like, all right, that, that stuff, the sexy stuff we're going to get to, 
but we need to start off with the with the blue collar stuff, with the day to day stuff that really truly makes a difference. So, Jordan, can you kind of sum up and and kind of go through the process at the crate uh, and and you know how somebody listening to this maybe they have a five year old dog that they've never had the expectation or or created the expectation for that dog to behave coming out of the crate, how does somebody go about doing it and uh, correcting it now when they haven't done so for the past five years? Yeah, it's more or less just changing the way you think and act around the dog. So you could start today and go to that crate different. Um, You could go to that door and the first thing you're going to see is that dog is going to probably rush that door. Um, You put your hand on the latch, the nose is going to touch the latch of the door. You start to open the door and the dog lets himself out. Um, So you're already representing blurry boundaries for the dog. So initially what you want to do to change it is go to that crate or that kennel and just hang out there. Um, and then just touch your hand against the door and then start really paying attention to what your dog is going to do. They're going to tell you what they're going to do before they do it. So instead of just letting that dog run out of that crate or that kennel, what we're having people do is have them wait at that crate or kennel door. And it may take three or four times to open the door, close the door. And then that dog will start changing because things are changing. You know, you're acting different, you're treating them different. So now they're going to start thinking and I call it problem solving. And that's where you start the stuff as a puppy to go through formal training later on in life. You, you put their mind on steroids to learn and to think and to pay attention. And more or less what they're doing is they're starting to problem solve. So they start to figure things out quickly. So you start using that door to have that dog wait in the crate or the kennel. And then you're going to see that dog probably just set back after the fourth or fifth time of just opening and closing that door. And they're going to start looking to you. Um, and they're going to more or less kind of ask you, how do I be successful here? And then the next step is you're going to put the leash on the dog and then you're going to lead the dog out of the kennel. So everything's going to be different, but you're going to be able to handle the dog through kind of whatever you're going to ask them to do after they come out of the crate being attached to the lead. And if you can do that in the morning time, right when you wake up and go have that initial conversation with your dog, that's going to be a huge game changer for the dog in the way that they're thinking and kind of looking to you for direction. So I just call it a conversation with your dog when I'm presenting it, but primarily what's really going on is that dog is, is buying into you, is looking to you. Um, they're, they're starting to think they're starting to kind of follow direction and then you can go right from there and go do something else. Um, and that's that's going to be the biggest change for the dog is is waiting at that door and having to look for direction right away. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I actually had a, a buddy come down uh, last weekend. He had a little 10, 11 month old poodle pointer and, and he, you know, he's never been shown or, or talked about this stuff. And and I pretty much did exactly what you described with the kennel. It's like, no, let's get them in the right mindset before we get get, get them out of the truck and uh, it just blew his mind that it took, you know, three times just kind of shutting the door on the dog. You know, it's not a verbal. You're not doing the I, I, no, wait, all that stuff. It's just like, no, just kind of shut the door. We're not slamming the door in the dog's face by any means, but it's just you come out when we say. And and it just blew his mind that, that it was that fast and quick to where in just two, three times, the dog's all of a sudden waiting to be released out of the kennel. And it just you're again, you're, you're stacking that win. You're just getting that early win before moving on. Yeah. If you use that door and you aggressively slam it right then, you're going to ruin your trust. You're going to cause resentment and you'll cause fear at that doorway. Um, we don't want the dog to do things out of fear. We want them to do them out of understanding. So we want to teach them what their job is at that door. Instead of if you come too close to the door, it's going to hurt. 
Um, so that would have been like more of the older school stuff of they come out, slam it on them. You know, they're obviously going to learn really quickly, but then all of a sudden the dog's shaking in the back of the crate or the kennel and nervous to come through that doorway. So, you know, breaking things down into very small details for the dog to figure it out. So that door just becomes an obstacle course. Um, it just becomes the dog's first job. They have to problem solve of what do I do here? So if they can problem solve that door and they can think and pay attention and overcome it, there's a certain level of stress that goes into that problem solving on their mind. So some dogs, you know, will kick in and say, I understand what to do. But then you'll see some dogs at the seminar, they'll start, you know, really stressing out about things are different. That older dog, that five-year-old dog that you're just talking about may be that dog that stresses more because now there's change in his life. So with change comes stress um, until they become confident. So, you know, if the dog is going to stress at the kennel door, imagine bringing them all the way to the obstacle course and trying to do this very intense obstacle or this formal training or woe breaking or fetch training. They can't wait at a door. They stress out the formal training. They're going to fail greatly. So our whole theory and our whole, the way we teach things is we're going to graduate from one obstacle to the next. Um, and we're going to build that confidence and that repetition in that dog. And they're going to take that small win, that small success and then carrying it into the next obstacle. But the initial obstacle course that we teach is just getting your dog out of the crate to the ground and then maybe back into the crate. Um, so breaking things down for people has really allowed them to learn. There's not this big hole that's left there to say, well, I, I did this, but what do I do before this or after that? So we're trying to make sure we leave with no holes after the seminar. Sonny, we, we, let's say that we have... We have the starting point done at the crate. We, you know, we we get through to the to the attendees at these seminars. What we're after, it makes sense. You blew everybody's mind, like you said. A hundred percent of the people are just wow. I can't believe this. What what are we going to next? You know, we we, we get through that first op obstacle. We've started the confidence. We've started the learning process for the dog. Where are we going next? Uh, the the first couple of seminars, we went right to the lead work, and we. I'm not going to say we failed miserably, but we did not necessarily hit the mark we were wanting to hit. So now from the last couple seminars, um, we're coming out of the crate and then we're doing a, a very basic, very in-depth, but very basic demonstration on how to properly use a piece of rope and then how to communicate through that that piece of rope. And I think that the biggest thing that me and Jordan have learned is rather than, you know, it's we all talk cues, we're not we're not by no means recreating the wheel. We're just we're just tweaking it to work to the, you know, to the best for us. Um, the big difference between what we're doing and maybe what we what I was taught to do is we're never going to cue a dog to do anything. Um, we're not going to cue the dog to sit. We're not going to cue the dog to go. We're we're one ninety nine point nine percent going to use our body uh, to make that move, and then of course correct for the correct or or not even correct but cue for the wrong decision. So if you'd get the dog to maybe a table and he doesn't want to jump on the table, um, but he does take that path of least resistance and he does go left, we're going to cue for his left movement. And as he goes right, we're going to cue for his right movement. That's the wrong decision. And as long as when he focuses on the center and will accomplish the task or the coursework, which is to hop up on the table, that's the success that he had. And there is no cue. He's doing nothing but following. Um, that's been a major game changer for me um, because there never is any resentment or misunderstanding about what to do. We're putting the dog in a position to think, like Jordan says, to problem solve and then validate their 
the right decision. So the, the learning gets accelerated um, because there's never a whole bunch of queuing and there's there's very, very minimal correction. Um, not that we won't, not that we don't correct because we do, but it's it's at a minimum. We're going to really teach first um, and then follow it up with a correction if need be. But to back that up a little bit, it's really working with the people on how to hold that lead in their hand, um, what the dog feels from their body, how they position their shoulders, how they position their head. Um, just really try to build the the human up to give the dog something to follow. So that's our next big step with the seminar. It's just proper use of a lead. Um, the confidence that you need to have in your body and how you need to move um, and really try to instruct and try to help and teach on how to get that dog to buy into actually following you and wanting to be with you, embracing being with you, no resentment about being with you. But then if need be, if you're going to crowd my space, you know, I'm going to crowd your space back. So some of those, you know, those bigger, badder, bolder, tougher dogs, there is absolutely some correction. So I don't want anybody to think that we've somehow turned this into some big warm, fuzzy, you know, kiss our puppy seminar. If if there's need for correction, it's it's going to get done. But the first is the teaching on what to do. And I mean, you, you have to have that correction to, to some extent with all dogs for them to understand the pack mentality, the, the hierarchy, so to speak, kind of what, what we were speaking on earlier is they need to understand that they that they don't get to decide that that they're following us and and we want them comfortable and confident with how they do that but but they don't get to decide what they do or don't do it's just, you know like you said there there's a time for a correction and and the people that try and think that the that if you correct a dog within training you're being cruel or something like that you know i'm not going to say that they're never going to get to where they want to go with their dog but it's definitely going to take a lot longer and i would argue probably a little bit less respect from the dog side point of view the big thing that i'm seeing with the coursework is that there's my my personal correction on a dog is it's it's minimal I would say probably cut by 70% of when I have to correct due to the coursework. So there's a real bond and there is a real relationship built with the dog to follow. Um, and I, and I, when we started, I thought it was more for the dog. I think today that it's way more for the person, for the human. Um, getting through the coursework and getting through the coursework with excellence and being crisp and clean is empowering the person, which is giving the dog something more to follow. So there's where that relationship is really starting to uh, come together. So when you describe a lead, are we talking, does it matter which kind of lead? Are we doing only slip leads? Does it matter if somebody just does a, a, a regular leash clip to a flat collar or a prong collar or anything like that? What kind of lead are you advising everybody to go with? The command lead. It's it's the best lead. You know, we can you can tweak it, you can turn it, you can you can call it, rename it. It's the best. There is nothing better. Like, you know, we don't need to recreate the wheel there. That thing works. Absolutely. And so we're developing the uh, the discipline on the lead, essentially getting the handlers used to using it because that it that is a skill in of itself, especially if nobody's really had their hands on a wonder lead or the command lead. You, you kind of hand that to them, and if they've only ever held you know a retractable leash or something like that, they're looking at this like how how the heck do I use this? And so that that's probably why you guys focus so much on teaching the the attendees the proper way to use the lead and your body language and and taking their space if they take yours and kind of moving away if you know uh, do you guys I'm assuming is it still the if they go left you're going to go right just kind of bring them into heel to kind of get them in the right position is that still the 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 way you guys handle it 
Yeah, absolutely. And the, and Jordan, um, he he brought a whole bunch to the table with giving that dog full uh, the full length of a lead to start with. So letting that dog learn right right from the start, uh, working baby puppies on on a lead, and and it's a, it's really a teaching program. I, I don't even know that we're even dog trainers anymore. I just I think that we're teachers. And I think we're, uh, to the people, we're the translators from the dog. You know, here's what the dog is thinking. Here's what the dog is saying. Now here, do this with it. So it's, it really more than ever has turned into a teaching program. Um, rather than get that dog on a lead and make him heal, um, we're, we're almost never making a dog do anything. It's letting them make a decision. And then we're there to help mentor them, help work them through the right decision. Jordan talks a lot about their frustration, um, their problem solving. You know, he, he does, he talks a lot about seeing things from the dog's point of view. Um, that's really a big part of who we are trying to I understand that animal, um, seeing where he's at. And then the most important thing is seeing where he needs help. So Jordan, once we kind of develop that that skill set or at least some sort of knowledge or foundation on how to interact with the dog with the lead as as the main communication tool, what are we doing next? Are we going into the agility course or are they going on the chain and then you guys kind of giving a lesson? What what are we doing once we kind of have that relationship with the dog handler and command lead? Yeah, so I think <clears throat> just back up a little bit, the biggest thing too is just teaching the people how to think and act around their dog with that lead on them. Um, you know, that was a huge piece for me that we brought to the table is, I mean, I go still go to Smith seminars and you see people that have been to 10, 15 seminars and the dogs are still pulling, they're queuing for everything, but it's just the way that you think and act around the dog and people are gaining so much power and confidence of just being taught how to stand around their dog, how to touch their dog, how to act around their dog. Um, so that's a huge piece of when we get on that leash is helping people and teaching them just how to hang out around their dog. Um, so once the dog is following on that lead with body language, so backing up again is I, I teach body language is the lightest amount of communication we can offer a dog. So people think that they have to cue a dog to do everything. Um, and then it becomes their crutch and then they desensitize the dog to touch. Um, and that causes us have to turn up so we can turn back down. So a lot of the dogs that we're getting have been yanked around on the leash and been cued to do everything. And they've lost complete value for the body language and for the touch. Um, so when we back up, we're going to that lead and we're trying to build extreme value for us. Um, you know, just as our body language moves. So our first goal is just to get those people moving with the dog. And it's, giving the dog all the leash and just getting them to follow, all right? Go with us and just hang out with us. And then when we build that trust where the dog is looking to follow, we go in the basic of the basic obstacles and we'll just put like a Coranda bed or a dog bed there. And we're going to bring that dog up to that dog bed and just let them hang out around it. Some dogs will naturally just walk onto it. Some dogs want to take the path of least resistance and go around it or go right um, bail out. Um, some are nervous of it. So we're allowing that dog to try to get on the same page of what we're about to teach. Um, we're not going to bring the dog into the obstacle and start cueing and causing some type of pressure to make this uncomfortable here. And then you have to figure out how to get comfortable of getting your feet onto that dog bed. That's going to be the biggest difference that people come from other seminars to ours at see is that dog will ultimately put themselves on that dog bed, uh, making their own decision there. So say that dog goes left, we cue and interrupt that decision, and then we just hang out. And then that dog may, well, I'm just going to go right around the dog bed. And then we just cue and interrupt that and hang out. 
And then the dog is going to keep trying all these decisions that it wants to try. And then ultimately they try, well, I'm going to maybe go on this thing. Um, so the dog gets to make all the decisions in the beginning and then we leave those decisions behind and the right one kind of follows us. So when we come back around to that dog bed again, that dog does not have any fear or resentment, um, you know, about that dog bed and they just put themselves onto it. So we start building a lot of confidence um, through that repetition, but we, we don't cause any resistance there. We don't cause any fight or flight there. And a lot of that fight or flight is caused from confusion. Um, yes, it can be caused from dominance and fear, but a lot of the fight and flight mentality that people get around the obstacles is because the dog does not understand what you're asking them to do. And then we're putting a bunch of cueing, which is pressure on the dog. And there's a whole reaction there. And then it's taught as there's the fight and flight pressure through it and make the dog do something. So the biggest difference you're going to see is that dog is going to be extremely, extremely confident about coming onto that obstacle time and time again. And then you bring that confidence into the next obstacle, which may be just jumping up on a higher place board or something like that. So the teaching of the obstacle is completely different. Um, you know, way back when the obstacle course was starting to get talked about, um, you know, Sonny kind of built that first obstacle course at his kennel and said, this is how I'm using it. It's the challenge, the point of contact when I flew out there. And then I went back to Quinnabog and started teaching, you know, now the agility became an obstacle course. So I started teaching it, but what happened was we were getting a lot of resentment around the obstacles. The dogs would see it and, you know, the dog was nervous of that obstacle is because we were putting a lot of pressure to get them onto it. Um, there wasn't a lot of decision making for the animal. We were making a lot of the decisions. And that's where this whole, you know, let's not cue the dog to do everything. Let's let the dog make all the decisions. And we only step in when the dog makes the wrong decision. So it's it's a big game changer in the way that we teach it, but also in the way that the dogs perform through the obstacle course. And we keep that enthusiasm. We keep that confidence going. Um, so the, the whole teaching of the obstacles would be the next step in all this. And that, that is a good point. That's something that, you know, I have me starting out on my little obstacle course. I built one here in my backyard and, and I've been using it and, and I really honed in on it after the Smith, uh, seminar that I went to. And, and to your point, Jordan, you know, I, the way Rick kind of taught it and showed us and, and it, it worked to a certain degree was you're you're making every decision for the dog you're queuing them up you're queuing them down you're requiring it to where you know you're gonna do it failure can happen but you're gonna at least try to do it right but to your point i was getting a, a little bit of resentment from my own dogs on certain obstacles because that they just weren't enthusiastic about doing it. It was just kind of like, okay, I'm making them do it, but they they just didn't care to do it. They didn't know the obstacle. And it wasn't until I, I spoke with Jen uh, at Quinnabog and did the obstacle course episode with her that she kind of put it in into those similar words to where, you know, you, you want the excitement, you want the dog to want to go on there. You don't have to ask them every time, cue them up, cue them down, you know, that may come later when we start in incorporating like the heel command and stuff like that around the obstacles. But once I went out there with that mentality and I built that excitement, now all three of my dogs will go run and jump on any one of my obstacles and be excited to be there, whether I'm asking them to just stand there and, and, and chill out or, or walk down the beam or go up the, you know, the ramp, whatever. 
it, it didn't take long. It only took a few sessions for them to realize that like, oh, this, this is fun. I know exactly what you want me to do. And I wasn't having to have my hands in the pot every single obstacle we approached. Yeah. And the, the kind of older school mentality with that leash was, you know, to cue, to make the dog do something where what we're teaching is that when we reach out and touch the dog with that leash, um, it's just to interrupt the decision. Um, so they may try the wrong one and it's that cue is just to interrupt that, that train of thought that the dog just got themselves into. And then they have to try on their own. And that's where the biggest thing is, is they learn to try. They learn to put in that effort. So you don't, you don't do the work for the dog or you don't make those decisions for the dog. And that's where you just keep getting more and more sour type dogs. So when I first started with this, that was the biggest learning curve was using the, the e-collar and the leash to kind of cause pressure or discomfort and kind of driving a dog to this place board or trying to get the dog to jump up here. If you don't jump, I'm going to put pressure on you and it's going to get uncomfortable. So the biggest change in the last like five to eight years of just kind of going through this and developing it is the enthusiasm and the the effort level behind the dogs, you know, the the pressure levels, um, you know, the force, it's it's kind of all gone away. The 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 drive from the dogs, the excitement from the dogs, the enthusiasm for the dogs is replacing all that stuff. Um, and it's just the way that you use the leash and you kind of teach the initial obstacles. And then you keep that open mindset to learn through the whole entire process. And then you carry that into your formal training um, and you never get those fingerprints left behind on the dog whatsoever. Sonny, you know, it sounds like you you kind of, as Jordan described it, you you built the the initial obstacle course and he flew in and, and you guys kind of. Uh, work together, learn it and figure it out. How how does somebody as myself, again, I, I haven't been doing this very long, just a few months this summer, uh, ultimately, how do you kind of balance out allowing the dog to try and make the decision on their own and correcting it when they make the wrong decision and start putting some structure and boundaries within it? So like, for example, if I have my dog at heel and they kind of get too far out ahead of me or, or the A-frame is a perfect example of this, my dog really wants to shoot up the A-frame instead of staying right along my side, how do you kind of balance and draw that line to where that we allow them to make the decision and go do it? They're technically not kind of doing it wrong in the sense of they're tackling the obstacle, but they're also not doing it within the within the expectations of like, I have them at heel. So like, how do you go about trying to balance that out with your dog? Yeah. And if you've experienced some of that stuff, you're starting to get a real good understanding about what we're doing. So there's a whole bunch that comes with that. Uh, the first thing is when you teach something new, you have to lighten up on the old. So if I've got a dog that's dialed in, you know, with a really good heel, if I go to start to teach something new, I'm going to back off on the old. Um, that'll eliminate those dogs getting froze up, um, you know, with with maybe a wool breaking process. So that so that, that's that's one thing. Um, the other thing is as they master, like you just said, they're looking to go to that A-frame and they're already anticipating getting over top of it. Then it's time to start to go to a harder obstacle. Um, again, Jordan talking about that thinking mindset, uh, keep that mind open to learn. That's where, in my opinion, the steroid concept comes from early on. I, when I, when I started to process some of the stuff in my own head, what I came away with, this is like a, uh, it's like a tough mutter for dogs and not only for the dog, but a tough mutter for dog and handler. So the more obstacles that you would accomplish between the two of you, you just, you were, it was, you were feeding off the adrenaline and you wanted more. 
So they got to be to the point where they were like on steroids to learn. So that's kind of how I stumbled into phasing out wool posts because they just, they were learning at such a rapid rate that I could start to teach them things just at a rapid kind of a time frame. So I don't know if that totally answered, answered your, uh, your question. Um, but but when they're when you're teaching something new, you've got to lighten up on the old to let them think. They don't need to be micromanaged. Uh, it's okay if they get out of pocket a little bit, or if they're you know if they're looking to maybe get out of the heel right up until it's a problem. Now, if they run out to the front of you and go and go mark your A-frame, that that has to have a correction. Um, for me, the rules on the course: if they try, I'm going to try. If they fail, or if we fail, we're just going to try again. But you can't quit on me, and there will be correction for quitting. Yeah, I mean, it, again, it goes back to, I think, uh, Jen phrased it that way to where, you know, hey, fa- failure's okay. It, it's fine. It's going to happen as long as you're trying. You know, that's all I'm asking is you're going to keep trying. And uh, that's the only thing that's unacceptable is not trying and not putting in the effort. So, you know, th- this is one of those topics to where I, I could keep picking your guys' brain on on the agility course and obstacle course all day long. But is is there something before we before we move on to the woe post uh, that you guys think that we should touch on within the obstacle course or or really the value that it brings? You know, this is one thing that comes to mind after I did the obstacle course episode is I still got quite a few people and feedback saying I have hunting dogs. Why why, why do I care about doing this? But to me, like we've already kind of answered that going all the way back, starting with the crate and home environment to where, you know, it's just an opportunity to stack wins, build that confidence. You get a dog that learns how to make decisions. If they make the wrong one, they know how to react to the corrections. Is that pretty much, it, you know, the the main benefit of the obstacle course to where you're getting the dog gaining confidence, but they also get that, you know, exponentially more repetitions to make decisions and respond to corrections? I think the obstacle course, more or less, um, if you can kind of connect it to, you know, the house and your your home um, and then the hunting field, everything just becomes that obstacle course. But the initial obstacle course builds your communication between you and your dog, builds the confidence between you and your dog, builds the trust between you and your dog. You get to learn how to read your dog. Um, so the handler builds intense confidence. And then you put them out in the field to go hunt. Now the birds just become the obstacle. Now the, the terrain becomes the obstacle. And you're using the same communication to handle your dog through there as you do through the course. And the dog is going to show the same decision-making process in the field as they do in the course. Um, so your living room, your home, everything becomes an obstacle course in life. Um, so the biggest disconnect is that is people say, I have a hunting dog. What do I want to use the course? Well, the course is just your prerequisite before you get to the field. So there's no resentment or no force being applied in the field. So if you can handle your dog crisp and clean through that course, and you got a very clear form of communication, then the breaking process on the birds is going to be the easiest thing that dog's ever done. So if somebody comes and the most common lesson is I'm having steadiness and retrieve issues, they come, the dog plows through the kennel door, you know, out of the truck. They can't walk the dog on a leash and things like that. We're going right to the course um, because they have a handling issue. They do not have a field, you know, a bird issue. So people need to understand that the obstacle course is to get that dog paying attention and looking to you for direction. And that's the exact same thing that they're having trouble with in the field. That bird is just such an intense obstacle that they can't handle the dog around that obstacle. So it, it's been a huge, huge 
kind of help for people to go to the field and be able to handle their dog and say, yep, I've seen that body language before. I know he's going to turn right because he's looking right. And that's the same thing he's doing in the obstacle course. Or it's, it's going to be a huge relationship building in that course that they can bring to the field. Sonny, did you have something to add on that? Yeah, I do. Because um, that's been very frustrating for us uh, watching and, and just, you know, paying attention to social media. Everybody's got a course and everybody's using it uh, to basically teach the dog to cross, a, you know, a teeter-totter, whatever it might be. Um, it's not about the course. Everything in life, like Jordan just said, everything is a course. So if we focus on everything, everything, you know, the out of the, the comment of the slower we go, the faster we go. You know, when we really master that course, everything else um, gets extremely easy. That's been the byproduct of the course, but it's not about the actual course. It's about the communication between the handler and the dog to actually follow me. So crossing a two by six or getting across a teeter totter, it's, it's very challenging for the animal. So it's all about follow and everything in life is a course. So, and that course initially, like Sonny said in the beginning, it's more for the people nowadays. So instead of them putting them in the field and I, I just put three birds out you know, go handle your dog. They need to learn how to handle their dog in the course. So the confidence for the people develops in that course. And then that confidence shows up in the dog. So somebody that's been failing over and over and over in the field, it's a handler issue. It's not a dog issue. The dog is very capable to go out there and do its job. It's just, we can't handle our dog or we don't know how to read our dog. So we're communicating and we're causing bad behaviors or whatever, imprinting, fingerprints, whatever you want to call it out in the field. It's just because there's a huge disconnect between the handler and the dog. So that course has given people the confidence to go do something with their dog. And that's why our seminars are not bird dog seminars that are open to everybody. Um, so our, our format applies to not just bird dogs, to dogs that are just going to be house dogs or agility dogs or whatever you want to do. Um, it's more about the relationship that's built. Um, so that's that's also a huge part that goes to the field is it's the people building the confidence to go handle their dog. Essentially, I mean, it's just getting getting handler and dog speaking the same language. And it kind of goes back to the way I look at it, I referred to earlier, to where you just said, Jordan, it's not just bird dogs at these seminars. It's pretty much just, you know, any dog uh, or, or trying to build that relationship to where if if we go buy a bird dog from, you know, a properly bred and genetically sound uh, kennel and breeder, the dog's love for birds is going to be there. Their instincts around birds should be there. So if you work on creating that language that you both speak, the the handler and the dog, and you're on the same page, it's going to make that field so much easier when you do have to correct them around a bird. And, and what I love how Jordan put it, the bird becomes an obstacle, not in the sense that we want them to go jump on it or whatever, but it is an expectation that, that we're trying to create with that dog, a learned behavior around and on birds. And that's, you know, it's like, it, the thing that I appreciate about the obstacle course, and again, it, it's relatively young for me, is, and I don't help nearly as many people as you guys do, this is y'all's job, I just have friends that come down here, is you guys can speak to it more than me. You can preach till you're blue in the face about how everything starts at the house, it starts at the crate, it starts, it, you know, the, the behaviors inside the house bleeds over, but like, you can't go home with them and for some reason it just doesn't click for what for whatever reason i found that when you're standing in the obstacle course or the agility course 
and you start showing people and they realize how fun it can be also, how quick the dogs can learn and, and just the immediate results and, and the respect the dog starts giving you, not only on the obstacle course, but in the house, it kind of speaks for itself and sells itself to where you're no longer preaching till you're blue in the face. Look, don't let your dog out of the kennel until you, you call it right. It's just, it's built within the obstacle course and it's, and it's something fun and unique to where most people, it really resonates with them a little bit better than just being lectured to. Absolutely. So Sonny, you, you mentioned something and th- this is, this is a, a big difference between what you guys are kind of doing now and what you guys uh, maybe started out doing in the foundation was you just said you kind of phased out the woe post. I want want you to speak on that because for you know for good reasons the woe post has been a staple within the dog community for you know the better part of a century almost now. So I want I want to get your take on the benefits. Like what was the woe post? What is the main benefits of the woe post? Why why has it been such a staple for so long? And what what kind of Put it, in, put the seed in your mind to maybe I can phase this out. Maybe it's no longer required by going about it this different way with the obstacle course. So um, for me, this you know we we stumbled into a lot of this stuff just due to pushing the envelope to try something and then communicating back and forth to one another about what's working and what's not working, and then uh, you know stepping outside the box to attempt something else and then to see if it works or it does not work. For me, my application of a post first phase was just to get rid of resistance. Well, I found out real quick that the course was elim- was getting rid of all resistance and it was not due to force. It was based on interrupting that dog's thought process for when he made the wrong move. So if he was supposed to go through the middle and he would go left, interrupt that thought um, and real quick, he started to get extremely open for instruction. So he, he had a very, uh, just a real open mind to learn of uh, just phenomenal problem solving almost to the point like you felt like they were on steroids for how they could learn. And the, the posts at the time were part of my coursework. Um, what I was seeing taking dogs to the posts is I just, I would lose a little bit of their enthusiasm. It just, they'd do it, but they weren't as, they didn't have a spring in their step to get there to get rid with the post. So I eliminated it. Um, and then from there to see if it would work, uh, started to build a point of contact with a lead to transfer a continuous on their neck. So it would be uh, go over a teeter-totter and then stop with just continuous pressure with with a lead. And then from there, break off to the, to the A-frame and then use continuous pressure to start to build in continuous pressure, which was basically a wool post, um, but that rope would have been on that flank. From there, instantly went to strapping that collar on a dog's flank and then going back to the course. And what I found is I had the same resistance that I would have had on a wool post. And then within seconds, not within minutes or days, because that dog had its coursework mastered and it had the enthusiasm to do the course, that collar turned into a non-issue literally in seconds. So now I could course that same dog through with a collar on its flank and it had all this enthusiasm because, yes, I am very, you know, I'm concerned about what you got strapped to my to my back here, but man... I know together we can do this coursework. So the enthusiasm was there to go try. There was no, there was just, we eliminated all the, the fight or the flight or the freeze. We just don't have that. And then of course, no resentment. So from there, the dog already had a point of contact on the neck with continuous pressure that meant stop. Um, and it was 100%. And then just paired the two together, literally paired the electric um, with the lead on the neck. 
and it was it was seamless. It happened almost instantly. Um, and then from that point, back to when you're teaching something new, lighten up on the old. So then I would keep that dog loose on that lead. And then just went to start to use low pressure stimuli on the flank. And it, it was working flawlessly. Uh, the first few workouts that we attempted to to uh, to learn, uh, from there, I went right to the field and cut the dog loose. Puppy development was all done. The dog had a good understanding of what to do in the field. Um, it had zero resentment and zero concern about the collar on the flank. So it, it ran when I blew a whistle. Um, prepped it with some real low you know, low one, medium one, high one, got to a low two, and that dog stopped like it's been doing it its whole life and looked like a million bucks. Um, I was blown away. So that that's kind of the first few runs at, at that, uh, for me to eliminate that, that wool post. It, um, that's just been my experience. Uh, the same, some of the same experience that Jordan will probably share with the retrieving work, it's exactly the same stuff. It's we're, we're almost like we're using their enthusiasm. I don't know if it's for or against them, but we're just taking all this enthusiasm that they have to learn and we're trying to teach. And the learning is accelerated because they're, they're, there's a lot of energy to do it. So to really sum it up, the collar on the flank caused some stress, just like what a wool post would. And then I went right back to the course and the dogs had the coursework mastered. So they literally put the collar on their flank out of their mind. It's like, heck yeah, we know what to do on the course. We were a team on the course. I'm going to follow you. Let's go. Literally, if you want me to jump off a cliff, I'll jump. And it's, uh, I've not turned back. It's probably, I don't know if it's seven, eight years now. I've, uh, I've not turned back. So we've got tons of dogs, um, that have, uh, been run through it with that the biggest byproduct that i'm seeing um one the the transition um from the flank to the neck is is literally seamless literally in the field you can go from a collar on a flank to a neck um prep them with some low level stim and they're going to stop there's no more pairing collars there's no more confusion there's no more dogs wanting to recall they look like a million bucks out there and then the other big byproduct if it is um is their handle is is phenomenal um i'm not 100% sure yet what's happened, but uh, my check cord work is at a bare minimum. Um, and I've got dogs that are going with me um, better than I've ever had. I'm not real sure uh, what, you know, really what that's from, but I do think it's got a lot to do with the course. And then, of course, uh, their bird finding ability in a, in a wild bird setting has been considerably better. So I'm seeing all kinds of major benefits for implementing the coursework into the, the field work. And I think it's important to note, you know, somebody might hear that and they'd be like, well, there, there's going to be holes or something that creeps up. But you just said that this has been seven, eight years. So it's not like you you just implemented this process like six months ago. You've had time to kind of proof it and see if any holes are going to arise through some of the dogs that have been run through it this way. Yeah, but I'm, I'm seeing I've yet to see any negative. Um, I'm seeing only positive. And I've talked, you know, to, to tons of different people about it. Um, I've not, I'm sure there's somebody that's probably done it. They just, you know, we haven't heard from it. We're not, I don't claim to, uh, you know, redesign anything. It's just, it's striving to have, you know, to, to come up with a better way. And then really at the end of the day is help the people with an easier, just a, a better way for them um, because the people have changed. So the better we can make it for the people, the better, the better off the dogs will be. Have you have you had a dog in the seven eight years that you have you've tried it this way? It ju it just wasn't clicking for whatever reason. It, it wasn't going as smooth, or or the transitions weren't weren't making sense for the dog that you did end up going back to the woe post. Has there been that special case outlier that just 
you know, maybe this doesn't work for all dogs, but the woe post, you know, there's something about getting that quiet head uh, that Rick always talks about. Get their head, you know. It, has there been that special case scenario that you've had to re-implement it? Absolutely. And what I'm what I'm doing is backing up a step to the course. So we go to the course and we will rather than, you know, cross a two by eight, let's go cross a two by six and get that quiet head, get that focus, work on that resistance. Uh, I'm real big with getting my hands on my dogs, um, using my hands to touch and to teach and to calm. And and then from there, go back to that collar on that flank. And then again, that's not been days or weeks. It's, it happens. And I, I don't want to say how fast things happen because it's not about it. We all know that training dogs is not a speed game, um, but their mind is so open for instruction that yes, they overcome it almost instantly. And there has been numerous dogs that uh, just backed up and did a little more course work because they're not ready for what I'm throwing at them. So rather than to, to force the issue, go back to teaching, you know, go back to what they're real comfortable with. And then within minutes, can get that collar on and they're they've overcome their own fear um not by anything i'm doing to force it but to give them the opportunity to, to learn it, it it reminds me of uh i listened to a, a podcast episode bob owens at lone duck did a couple months ago with pat nolan in the retriever world talking about training within drive and uh, that's essentially what you're describing is you're building that momentum that enthusiasm from the dog and you're training with within that those parameters to where you're not forcing anything and it's you're not relying on force you're not relying on correction it's just you, you just kind of built it up to where you and dog are just kind of moving at the same pace and and just training within that drive the the wool breaking stuff has been really cool for me but uh, the retrieving work that jordan's doing it just it makes my hair stand up i mean it gives me goosebumps when i watch him demonstrate dog that have absolute we just had one uh, two seminars ago that had absolutely no drive uh, it was a lab puppy that just the owner said it just has it has no drive to retrieve. And he had a very good obedience program going um, good heel, you know, good lead work uh, within no exaggeration. I'm going to say within probably five minutes, uh, Jordan had that dog up on the course and had it wanting to naturally retrieve. And within just a few minutes, he had it reaching for for bumpers um, by using this mindset and, and coursework. So the retrieving aspect of it has been just unbelievable. Jordan, let, let's jump into the retrieving deal because, you know, it for whatever reason, whether you're on the retrieving side or the upland side, there there's something in people's uh, heads that, you know, they, they really emphasize retrieving sometimes, oftentimes more so than I would argue that they really need to, especially with young, versatile or upland dogs. But, you know, the answer, it seems like, especially if you go on social media or any of these forums, it's like, the answer that you always see and you have since I've been in this world is force fetch, force fetch, force fetch. And it sounds like from what I've heard, this is kind of how I heard about you, Jordan, before the method even really kind of came out was you you developed a process to quote unquote force fetch your dogs without the typical force fetch program. And, you, and you've just been primarily util, utilizing the agility course and the, the lead. So I want to hear more about this if you can kind of break it down for us kind of stepping back of, you know, I used to ear pinch every dog um, when I was initially taught on a retriever based, you know, force fetch. Um, I was running into dogs that were kind of becoming extremely resentful and folding up um, in the whole process. It was hard on them. It was hard on me. The owners wanted nothing to do with it. Um, so I started kind of thinking after we started this coursework, after I went to Sonny's and kind of started understanding how he was using the obstacle course got back home and said, why can't I just add a bumper to the obstacle course? Why do I need a fetch fetch? And then we have this 
extreme learning ability off this body language and touch. Why do I need to create another point of contact on the toes or the ears? Why can't I use a point of contact that the dog already knows how to take direction off of? So the whole process was if I can teach them to put their feet on something, I can teach them to put their mouth on a bumper. So kind of using that open mindset to learn and follow direction through the course, um, I started using the lead to shape the retrieve in the course. And it worked on the first one and transitioned to an e-collar cue if I needed it. And then went to the ground with it, transferred to birds, and then just kept doing it and playing with it, doing it and playing with it. Um, and I was like, all right, this is this is working. So the initial, again, frustration drove me to try to find a better way. Um, the initial people saying, okay, it's time to fetch train your dog. This is how we do it. And I don't want to do that. Caused me to try to search for a different way. But the fetch method is done. When you get the dog through the course and you get a really crisp, clean, confident type dog um, that's enthusiastic to move through the course, you add to it with the bumper. Um, so the the fetch is taught to be still, go with and come to the three parts to fetch. And we do that while they're going through the obstacle course. And we're using that leash to when they make the wrong decision, when the bumper is presented to them, you're trying to use their natural enthusiasm against them to teach the fetch. You're, you're almost trying to create that anticipatory behavior to reach out and grab it. And then you're just using your leash to help shape it. Um, so if they go to loosen their mouth up to have, you know, a loose hold, you can cue there and just interrupt that decision or they drop it. Then you can cue and then have them retake it or Whatever it may be that the dog tries, we're using that leash to interrupt to have them try something different. So this problem-solving mindset that they've created in the course already to figure things out and how to overcome obstacles, I saw the time teaching the fetch was like extremely fast. Um, and I did it dog after dog after dog. And I started when I was back at Quinnabog Kennels playing with it. Um, and that was probably 2016, 2017. And I've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dogs with it so far. Um, and every single dog that goes through my basic programs um, gets fetch trained. Um, and that includes starting in puppy development. Those puppies, eight to 10 weeks old, have paint rollers moving through the course with a paint roller in their mouth off the wonder lead. And then when they come back to finish more formal training, we transition and we go right to the bumper and then right to a frozen bird and to a fresh killed bird. But it's all done in the course. So the dog learns to handle with something in their mouth. And then when we see the retrieve that we want in the course, then we go apply it to the field. And so when you're going through the course and everything, as you said that, you know, if playing with the cues, you know, whether you need to cue it with the lead or, or, or the e-collar, when you come off the course and go into the field, do you, do you have that mechanism to sometimes, uh, sometimes you need to drive a dog, a force to pile, so to speak. Uh, especially when you're doing dogs with like long blinds or something like that, or, or when you kind of go through your program, are you coming out the other end with that mechanism as well? Or is there just no force at all? If that makes any sense. There's no force or driving. It's all based upon their understanding to do it. Um, so if I throw a bumper and say the dog runs to it and goes to the left, just like they did initially on that dog bed, I touch there and then ask the dog to try again. And then they may go to the right, I touch there. And then they try picking the bumper up because that's what's been successful in the course. So the cue, I don't ever put a discomfort or continuous type pressure to make the dog go quicker, faster towards the bumper. 
Um, I find I don't have to because there's a lot of enthusiasm at the end of the fetch program where I used to spend a lot of time trying to loosen dogs up after fetch training. Um, you take the bumper out, you know, they shut down, they get nervous. Um, there was a lot more resentment involved in the whole process. And that was the whole fear of owners not wanting to do it themselves. Um, you know, I had other pointing dog trainers, uh, send me dogs just to get fetch trained because they didn't even like the process or weren't comfortable doing it. Um, so I think the enthusiasm factor, um, I understand retriever people have, you know, specific drills where they want to do that burn to the water, burn to the pile. Um, I don't find a need for it and I don't ever need to use, you know, an application in that sense because of the application that I'm asking my dogs to retrieve in. Um, it's all upland style. It's all kind of going out there and enthusiastically picking things up and bringing it back. Yes, there's rules. Go get it. Bring it right to me. Um, but I have my e-collar finished on the dog. So if I need to in the field, I can reinforce that pickup no matter what the dog tries to do. So that communication is there to do the right thing if I need it to. And so kind of similar to my question with Sonny in, in terms of phasing out the the woe post and if he's kind of seen any outliers, dogs that maybe didn't take to it. You've, you've also been doing this. You just said six, seven years, something like that. Have you have you seen a case to where a dog doesn't really take to this process? And then what about the results? Have you have you gotten any feedback from somebody that maybe takes that that foundation and tries to go compete at a high level in some retriever trials or something like that? Has has there been any kind of hiccups in that transition or training up to that next level of retriever work? Um, no, because it kind of finishes in the same spot that our retriever program finishes is being able to touch your e-collar and momentary pressure. I don't use continuous. To me, continuous causes a panic fetch um, or causes the dog to get flooded with pressure where they do things out of almost fear or panic type reactions. So everything's momentary pressure for the moving. But it gets finished just like your natural force fetch program. Um, it's just the process to get there. So I've never had a dog that can't make it through my program. I've never had failure. I've never had to back up and go to an ear or toe. I always have that question, you know, when I first started this, is this going to be the one that is going to challenge? But because of that coursework, I've never had to kind of go back. Um, it's just kind of prepped me for success with every single dog. Okay, so walk me through kind of building that cue to, as you talked about, you know, you can get your dog to put his feet on something. You can also, you know, get your dog to put its mouth on something. Walk me through the process of actually building that cue to get that dog to pick up an object. And more specifically, you know, talk to me as if we're talking about a dog that, as Sonny just uh, referenced, doesn't have any retrieving drive at all. You know, it, force fetch, you know, it's been around for a while. Everybody says, you know, you we'll get through it to where, you know, if dog doesn't have retrieving drive, we can still put a retrieve on it. I want to know, like, how do we do that within your method now? So you can either have a dog. I tell people three things is they have a ton of toy drive to want to grab a bumper and hold on to it. Um, you get a dog that is fearful. Somebody's already been there and imprinted that dog. I get a ton of that of you know, another trainer said this dog's unfetchable to be trained, or I tried it myself. I'm hitting a roadblock. I've shut the dog down. Or you get a dog that's kind of in the middle of what the heck is that thing? You know, what do you want me to do with it? Um, so depending on that initial reaction, um, but you all start in the same spot is bring that dog up onto an obstacle. And we're using those place boards with the two by six. 
Um, you bring them out there, the dog is fully engaged with their body on an obstacle. So their feet, their muscles, their legs um, are up there and the dog is trying to stay up there. It's already learned that before we start to fetch. So the initial, you know, rolling that bumper into their mouth, um, any resistance is going to be from primal reflex of, I don't want something in my mouth. So some dogs enjoy, want that in their mouth. Some dogs have fear already from somebody causing that, or the dog says, I have no interest in this. What do you want me to do? So it's a initial kind of just hold on to it, a be still, just hang out. So the obstacle course absorbs and extinguishes a lot of the resistance that on a big fetch bench um, would have. So if I initially place that in the dog's mouth and it says, I don't like that, and it jumps down, just like Sonny was saying in the low, I just asked them to jump back up and try again. Um, where there's the old school fetch bench, they would jump off and hang on a pulley, or maybe they're already on a one link to the end pole where they're already in a resentful state of mind because they can't go anywhere. So there's a ton of decision-making um, that the dog can do. Um, and I want them to try all those different things in the beginning because then they don't hold on to those decisions through the whole process. They get to try them all in the beginning. And there's no correction. It's just try again, try again. And you're using that try to mentally get that dog to make its own decision the first couple of times. So it's all about be still. Just bring the dog up there and get them to just stand still mentally and physically. If mentally they're still, their mouth will be still. So you're just shaping the dog to be still and hold on to it. Once you build that confidence, the dog, you'll see through repetition, you bring that bumper up, you'll get anticipatory behavior as the sight of the bumper, the mouth will just start to open. It's kind of like what you said of, hey, I'm heading towards the teeter-totter, but the dog just naturally runs up there and beats me to it a little bit. That anticipatory behavior of the dog running through. Now I want to put rules on the course. Well, now with that bumper, you have that anticipatory mindset, the same thing. So now we use that against them of now you almost have the dog go with you. You offer the bumper. They're going to start walking through that bumper. All right. So they're walking. You're going to offer it. They're going to see it. It goes into their mouth and now they move off with you. Um, so that's the go with you stage. Um, once I get that done, I can transition over to an e-collar if the dog's been e-collar conditioned. And then I just extend that reach for it farther and farther all the way to the ground. So everything's done up on top of an obstacle. And my favorite one is that place board, two of them with a two by six or two by eight. And I'm just using that to really help build the foundation of go grab that and go with me, go grab that and go with me, go grab that and go with me. And then I'm looking at you know, hard mouthing, or I'm looking at rolling and all that type of stuff. If the dog naturally already has that, or maybe somebody already caused that from, you know, stress mouthing from another program, I'm really shaping what I want it to look like in that beginning stage. Um, and then it just progresses pretty much after that step-by-step step of moving farther and farther to the ground. So it's a, it's a be still, go with me, come to me type mindset. And so when when you say that there there's no corrections, we're just cueing and and just doing it until they figure out like that this is this is what I want. When when you're f doing the whole conditioning, so to speak, you know you're not you're not doing hold work in the, in the sense that we all have come to know it. How are you just doing the same thing? You're just using the command lead to to continuously cue until the dog stops mouthing it or, or rolling it or dropping it. Yeah. So if they go to say loosen up their head and go to spit it. I just touch the lead there and interrupt that decision. Then they go, okay, that's not what he's looking for. And then, okay, I'm going to lower my head while I touch there and just say, nope, that's not what I'm looking for. And then they just be still like exactly what I'm looking for for maybe a couple seconds. 
I just released that bumper out of their mouth. So you start validating these small little efforts of what you're looking for, and they learn how to be successful. That's that problem solving the dogs learn to do in the course. And that stuff happens extremely quickly. Um, so like that dog that Sonny was talking about at that seminar, they had, they had so much obedience on the dog. The dog didn't have an open mindset. Um, so they said it had no toy drive, no interest in chasing bumpers. But once I got that dog to loosen up mentally and it was okay to maybe try something that it was initially afraid to try, there was a ton of retrieve desire in there. Um, so I want that open mindset. I want them to try different things. If you just grilled your dog so hard in that course and caused this fear to mess up, you're going to get corrected. You're not going to have that mindset to try. So it's almost kind of like an, using that dog as an example, the guy that instilled the obedience and and that really impressive sharp dog uh, outside of the retrieving. It's almost like he got in the way and smothered the natural retrieve drive in the dog by building it up that way. And you just kind of had to build it back out and get the dog comfortable. And hey, you can go make a decision. You can try different things for you to even have the opportunity to create this this behavior. Exactly. Yeah. The, the dog in this coursework has to be able to think on their own and make decisions. If you take that away from them, I mean, you're going to force them the rest of their, their training career. Um, and that was the retriever based program that I initially learned is those retrievers take direction and that's all they do. If they mess up, there was accountability and a lot of those labs could handle and recover from that. But a lot of these, you know, pointing dogs or rescues or, hey, I just want to fetch train this dog just to play retrieve with it. Um, they didn't have that. They weren't able to learn or problem solve. They weren't able to recover. They weren't able to get themselves out of these mindsets from the pressure and all that. So things had to change. And that's kind of the biggest change I've seen is all dogs can complete it. All dogs can go through it. And then people, even if they're doing it wrong, they're not going to ruin and wash out the retrieve program because they're not putting on this intense amount of pressure to say, here's the discomfort, figure out how to shut it off. Um, and then all of a sudden the bumper comes out the next time and they start shaking like, oh man, I know what comes with that. So that, wow, yeah. that change has been huge for the people to say, hey, go home and play with this. Um, and then the dogs come back and even if they were doing it wrong, you know, the dog is not resentful, you know, when that bumpers around. So I don't start with the wooden dowel anymore because they'll never have to fetch that again. Or I don't have to start with items that I initially are going to cause the dog to be scared of or resent and not start with the finished product was, which is the bumper. Um, so I start right with the bumper, um, cause I don't have to create that, that fear driven response anymore. Um, so it's been great for puppies, like I said, and I fetch train every single dog, no matter if they have a natural retrieve, um, you know, whatever it is, because at some point that owner's going to say, Hey, he was doing good, but now he's doing this. So it's easier just to teach them than it is to change them. So the, you know, my understanding of the fetch training way back was hunt them through a season because you get so much intense drive and maturity out of the dog. They're going to make it through that older school fetch program at that point where I'm fetch training, you know, 10 week old puppies right now. Um, it's they don't need that that maturity to make it through or that boldness or that toughness anymore because things are things are much different. It's all on the dog side instead of my side. So if I can help that puppy through, um, you know, by six months old, they're done with fetch training, their adult teeth are in and we're good to go. That's a really interesting point. You know, like you said, you, you, you're no longer relying on putting the deposits in the bank to where, you know, when you go into this training program, you know, after the first hunting season, you're going to be 
constantly taking some withdrawals out and you've built up the bank account to where you're you're not going to have that negative balance by the end of it. You just say, you know, well, hey, let's just kind of do this as we go along and and we're not building up just to take away and then try and build back up. You're just kind of doing it within the flow of it again. Yeah. And the whole theory of dogs work off two mindsets, successful and unsuccessful. So from in my mindset, why from the start just showing the successful way to do it instead of letting them learn another way and then going back and trying to reprogram it all, just show them how you want it from the start. And then they never learn those other ways. So it's if you're good about it and you're good at reading the dog and you're good at this coursework, which is easier for the people. Um, you can teach this stuff extremely young. And in these seminars, we have baby puppies on command leads going through these obstacles and they're they're running through, cracking their tails, enjoying every second of it. Um, and those dogs at six months old are so much, so much more dog than if people just step back and let them be a puppy. Um, they're they're developing their minds, they're giving them direction, they're giving them that leadership, they're giving them structure, everything that they had with mom that course and that person is now going home and providing for that puppy. Um, and it's been, it's been huge for brand new puppies for people to start with. It gives them something to do. And I mean, it, it kind of goes back to, again, that, that lab puppy example to where how many times do we as handlers get in the way of the dog's learning and progression by smothering certain drives? Because we think, we hear all the time, like, set the boundaries, set the structure, obedience, obedience, obedience. And I've even been guilty. You know, I was just advising, a, again, a, a buddy the other day to where you have to kind of balance out the obedience stuff. You know, do something that sends them away, then have them come back. You don't want to do too much stuff that requires them right at your side because then you're going to have a search issue when you go out in the field. It's, again, training and developing these learned behaviors within within the flow and the drive of the individual dog to where you're not taking anything away from them or adding it in. It's just kind of you truly are kind of operating within the natural progression of each individual dog. So let's move. Let, let's Jordan, I can keep picking your brain on brain on the, on the force fetch stuff. That might have to be like a dedicated episode in of itself at some point down the road. But when when we talk about the field, you know, we've we've developed all these behaviors and stuff on the agility course and and all these expectations and stuff going into the field. What are you guys kind of seeing at, with so much emphasis on the front end of the behavior at the home and the crate on the agility course? What are you guys seeing when you actually finally do get to go out in the field and do the sexy stuff that we all love to do with our dogs? Well, what we're seeing is they're paying attention. So like, you know, you're just talking obedience, sit, stay, come, heal. Uh, we're not, I don't think our program is really designed on a sit, stay, come, heal program. It's really designed to a pay attention kind of a program. So when we are getting ready to cut them loose and go do things like take some chase, um, it, it's, it's, it's flawless. Like it's just, it's happening almost overnight. Not that there's not a few hiccups, but they're, they're responding to what we've done on the course to the point where there's again, zero resentment. And then just this crazy ability to want to keep working and want to keep trying. So there's all this run and there's all this enthusiasm and there's all this handle. Um, and it's just, I, I don't know if fun is the word, but there's just all this enthusiasm for the animal and the handler to go out and accomplish things. So, you know, back to their handle. I don't know, you know, when the last time I had to really handle a dog or really get after a dog to handle. Um, this relationship and this bond that's being built on this course 
and, it, and it's not this warm, fuzzy bond. It's a, it's a, you know, the leader and the follower. I mean, it really, really, really gets a, a very obvious black and white concept of who's who. So everything else flows real nice. And I think the field overlay, you know, I try to look at everything like an obstacle. If I want to handle a dog to say an island where I think yeah. there's birds or an edge. To me, it's no different from handling them to a catwalk or getting them to change direction in the course. Um, but then when you go to like the breaking process of the dog trying to chase and then we interrupt that chase, um, you know, that dog's mind, that mental stability there from problem solving the course is going to say, OK, that didn't work. Um, I need to try something else. So instead of getting this like overabundance of prey drive to have to deal with in there, we can interrupt it that much easier from that coursework. So what I have found is going to the field and setting up these presentations for the dogs, they're making and trying the right decision much faster because of the learning ability and the problem solving that they've completed in the course. So I'm using the same communication out there in the field um, and then they're applying it to the presentations that I'm giving them to them out there. And that's why I'm really big about presenting that that field, um, you know, or the woods as an obstacle course. I ask people to handle their dogs to that bird. And when they get to the bird to apply that communication, it's no different. If they can't handle their dog to a dog bed and get them to be still on a dog bed, it's the same exact thing we're about to go do on a bird is handle them to that bird and get their dog to stand still on that bird. So you're prepping the people for success, but the dog is so driven to learn and problem solve around those birds. They're making those decisions to stand still on their own much quicker um, because they're saying this doesn't work and they're trying something else. So that's been a, a big change that I've seen is the, the, the time that it's taking because of, because of the dog and the coursework. Now, in terms of that, that, honestly, you know, to to stop real quick, that's that's kind of what I expected. I mean, everything as you talked about earlier, the the bird is the obstacle. You're just changing the obstacle from the actual obstacle course and putting it in the field. But we've already established the foundation that where we've created that dog that is a problem solver. So uh, the field transition again, you know, going back to the Smith method, we're taught, you know, we teach it here in the short grass, so we're not teaching it out there in the in the tall grass around birds. It's the same concept here. It's just that you know the short grass is is just looks a little different within y'all's method. So I want to move on to maintenance. You know, when when we go through all of this, we've gotten the foundation, we've gone all the way through the retrieving and the field stuff. What does the maintenance look like for your dogs? Are we still running through the agility course, you know, on a daily basis? Are we doing it multiple times a day? Are we still trying to challenge them and come up with even more and crazier obstacles? You know, talk to me about how we progress even further once we get the quote unquote finished dog, or at least the dog up to the certain level in the field that we desire. Yeah. So that it turns into a way of life through the seminars. I think what we're doing again, more so for the dogs, it's for the people. Um, it's always been a people teaching seminar since the beginning, but it seems to be even like crazy more now than what it's ever been. Our seminars are really, really, really designed for the people. So if we can get our job done, the people leave there with a different mindset. So it turns into just a way of life of how they live with the dog. And the so it's not necessarily about making the course harder or doing the course two times a day, back to the concept where everything in life is part of the course. So it just flat out turns into a way of life. Um, some of my personal dogs, they might not get attention, you know, besides besides being with us because we're, we're trainers. So they're with us throughout our normal day, which is, you know, chain game time, 
um, social hour in the morning. But the truth of the matter is they might lay idle for, you know, it, it's not far-fetched where it could be a week, two weeks before we even get our hands on them. Um, my experience has been you go to grab one. I've not seen dogs for three, four, five years. Uh, they come back in for boarding. They come back in for a tune-up. They'll pick up just like everything, you know, everything else, but they will pick up right where they left off on that coursework. And you can tune them up just record fast just by getting that focus back on that course. Jordan, what, what's your kind of maintenance or routine? Is it just, you know, just like Sonny said, it's a way of life, just kind of an everyday or, or, I mean, I know as pro trainers, you guys are like every profession, you know, the painter's house is, is the house that needs painting the most and, and the mechanic's car is the one broken down. They don't have an opportunity to do, to do work on their own stuff. Uh, in terms of, you know, the dogs that go through your course, Jordan, what's the ideal maintenance uh, schedule or routine for your finished dogs, whether it's your dog or just a client dog and you're advising them once they're headed out the door? Sonny said it becomes a lifestyle, but it's more importantly a balance. So, you know, that dog that gets hunted all season and now it's the end of hunting season, what does that balance look like? He's not getting the physical and mental stimulation that he was getting maybe. So these dogs are now 95% just house dogs. So what does the maintenance look like on the off season end and during the season is that coursework, um, you know, gives them that purpose, gives them that job, that mental stimulation. So people go to work every day, they come home, they're mentally and physically tired from having to stress their brains out and think all day and make decisions all day. That dog gets cooped up at home and then their minds go busy and they start putting it to use in negative spots. So that balance, if you got that busier dog or that dog that's got a ton of work ethic, putting that dog to work daily or every other day, whatever that balance is that fits that dog, that coursework has been a spot to go build it in your backyard, put it in your garage, put it in your living room and give that dog some mental stimulation to think and pay attention, just like people are getting, you know, physical stimulation, keeping that dog in shape. Um, you know, it's going to feel exhausting to be, you know, a leader all day long. So separating yourself from that dog, um, putting them in the crate, and then you taking a break and getting away from them. Um, so it's definitely a balance of mental and physical stimulation, structure, boundaries, and leadership. So the, the maintenance for me, for my personal dogs, they're kennel dogs. That kennel provides that structure and boundaries. When they come out, there's got to be leadership involved. There's never that go do whatever you want type thing. Um, and then with the client's dogs, when we send them home, I try to I try to get them to surface the mindset that the dog was living in during the training program. So here's how to get that mindset to surface and apply it at home. And then that's that balance. So it may be you know, a crazy neurotic type dog that came in for training, or it may be a super laid back. So that maintenance is going to be different on the individual dog um, and then people's lifestyles. But it's all based upon that mental stimulation, physical stimulation, structure, boundaries, and leadership. Yeah, we, we stress a bunch about the, uh, the false sense of responsibility that the dogs end up with on the off season. And that's literally being the leader. And then all this neurotic behavior comes from, you know, especially with the puppies, they're not old enough to know what to do with that kind of responsibility. But of course, then the human doesn't pay attention. And then this poor puppy is stuck with this having to be concerned and worry about everything. And then of course, as he grows, that just gets worse. So that is also a big part of a, you know, when you talk about a maintenance program, we stress a lot about that false sense of responsibility that we put on them. So it, it really ends up being, you know, res respect the animal enough to to discipline it and give it some structure and give it some boundaries. 
Absolutely. The the pack is going to have a leader one way or the other. If you're not going to fill the shoes of the leader, it's going to fall on the shoulders of one of the dogs to where they're like, all right, well, if he's not going to lead, I'm going to have to lead. And we don't want that. They don't want that. They operate much better when there is an actual clear leader within the, within the pack. Absolutely. And that, that transition can happen day one, you get that dog. So it, it's leaving that breeder's house where it had the leadership with mom. Um, and this, this maintenance that you were talking about needs to start day one. Um, it needs to kind of give that puppy what it needs right away. Otherwise, they're going to develop those stress, those anxieties, that fear, that dominance. Um, so it's it's not about waiting till they're old enough to train, training, and then maintaining. It's, it's a lifestyle day one um, and adding a little bit more every day as that dog gets older. But that stuff needs to start day one, and that's where people are missing. I hear all the time, oh, they're just a puppy. They'll grow out of that, and we'll fix that when they're older. Um, I just did private seminars for a retriever pro that was so so stressed about the way his clients were raising the dog. So he wanted me to help them you know, develop this lifestyle to when they do come for training, he can do what they're asking them to do. Um, the biggest disconnect was that they get the puppy, and then – they worry about things much farther down the road. So I, I would definitely stress that balance and maintenance starts day one with that puppy. Yeah, that, that, that makes a whole lot of sense. And, and, you know, just establishing the pack and the, the leadership role, you know, not one time in this almost two hour long conversation that I'm going to have to split up into two parts, I'm, I'm sure. But uh, not one time I've heard, have I heard either one of y'all imply that y'all give a verbal command and so like i want to stress the fact that like correct me if i'm wrong you guys are just hot and heavy on the silent command structure as as the smith method preaches all the time right you know there to to create that good leadership role you you shouldn't have to keep giving verbal commands that ultimately at the end of the day mean nothing to the dog because they don't speak our language it goes back to what you guys have talked about this entire recording was get the dog paying attention to you and your body language and what you want and have them solve the problem so you're not having to continuously tell them and they're not dependent on you telling them 100 percent. yeah i agree Going back to the touch and body languages, the dog language. So the closer we can communicate to what they do with each other, the quicker they're going to learn and kind of reference it. If we try to complicate it with noise and, you know, food and all this type of stuff, it, it kind of goes against the way they communicate. So the, the silent stuff is, is definitely 100%, you know, what we preach. You can always add a verbal cue later on once you shape the action, but the, uh, the body language and touch is huge. And the only the only reason that we're going to add a verbal cue later on in in the program is because the people want it. It's it's not needed. If you're going to use verbal, it's not necessary to give a command. In my opinion, is to interrupt thought. And then of course your body presents what it is you want them to be doing. So yeah, the the verbal is way overrated. Yeah, and and the more I do this, the more more anybody that you know I, I'm I'm kind of learning from and getting to interview and, and I really respect uh, in, in this world all says the same thing. It's it's one of those common threads that no matter which trainer or method or process you follow, it seems like that is the common denominator of stop trying to get the dog to speak English and you just go speak dog. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I don't know who said it, but uh, it was along the lines of Everything a dog is going to do, you can fit it in the palm of your hand. You know, they're, they're not difficult. And none of us are really recreating the wheel. 
we're all striving for knowledge. We're all striving for information. And, uh, you know, that I think this is probably from Rick. If you're not going you know, forward, you're going backward. So we're always pushing to be going forward to learn and be the best we can be. And that's really what it's all about. Absolutely. And, and as we kind of start trying to trying to land this plane and, and wrap this up, you know, I, I did tell you guys before we jumped on here, I did want to get your guys' take or at least uh, the story of how you guys came up with the name of this whole thing, the method, you know, that's that's kind of uh, people either kind of love it or hate it. I kind of get it from a marketing standpoint, but uh, as somebody that like kind of appreciates the dog world as a whole, where everybody's kind of used to the traditional, take the name of the d- guy that did it and it's their method, you know, it could be like the Sunny method or Jordan method or, or whatever, fill in the blank. You guys have skipped all that and y'all just went ahead and jumped to the to the conclusion that this is the method. So I want to get your guys' take. How did that come about and what kind of reaction have you guys heard on that because that's pretty much the the main drawback or negativity, if you want to call it that, that I've heard from other people. But from a marketing standpoint, I'm kind of surprised it hasn't happened already. Yeah, we haven't. Uh, Jordan, I'll get this one. We haven't. We put absolutely no thought into this whatsoever. Um, <laughs> it, it currently today, you know, is the it's it really is the mindset method for our phase one. But the truth of how that name come about is George Lyle referenced it, uh, our, our method on a podcast on the flush. And that was it. We were trying to come up with a name and it was that it was no more than that. So there's, uh, there was no thought put into it whatsoever. George named it and we just wrote, we, we just let it stick. We were sitting at the, uh, Mariposa ranch, just sitting there, just spitting out. We could call it this. We could call it this. We could call it this. And we, it was just months and months of thinking of what do we call, you know, and then it just, it happened all on its own and we just ran with it. So it was, we were putting, you know, ideas down on paper to say, you know, what is this? How can we call it? How do we organize it? And it just, we kept referencing the method and then George did that and that was it. So it's. But I, but in, in the, now that we've got uh, some time, a little bit of time under us, it really is the mindset method. It's it's about trying to change the mind of the people and and get the mind of the human in a different spot. Gotcha. And I mean, for for the detractors of you know, it, it happens with every method, no matter what. I I interview pretty much every trainer with every method, and and there's always somebody that messaged me. It's like, oh, that's just this method that does it this little small way, and it's like, well. That's dog training. The principles of dog training are the principles of dog training. It's just how people go about doing it, how they interpret it, some some of the how-to stuff. It's all different. And as Rick Smith even said it when I interviewed him, like, if the processes and methods today aren't completely different in 25 to 50 years from somebody else taking it and improving it and making it their own, then we've kind of failed as dog trainers. We should always be trying to evolve, make it our own, make it better, try and improve on it. And, you know, while obviously there are some some very distinct commonalities and common threads between the Smith method and what you guys have, that's that's the foundation that you guys came from. So, of course, you're going to take the principles from from what you guys, you know, started out with and kind of made it your own. It's not a knock against the Smith method. And like you said, Sonny, you didn't really give it any thought whatsoever. It was just it got labeled as the method, but it's really the mindset method. Yeah. And then, you know, to give where credit where credit is due, we've all been exposed. Uh, well, I'll just me and Jordan have been exposed to a ton of different concepts. Um, 
and the, this program has been inspired by, you know, the, the Rick Smith silent command system. I mean, that's where we've got some of our, from some of our, our best info. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that it's, this has never been about an ego and boy, if you've ever spent any time with Jordan, you'll realize that you've never seen anybody with so, with such a small ego. I mean, he, the, the saying of, uh, you know, he's, he walks real quiet with a very big stick. Um, and when the, when this, when the smirk comes, you know, he's got this smirk about him and you can see that, uh, you know, there's something going on, but you just, you can't find anybody more humble. So we're just like everybody else. We're trying to learn and we're trying to help people. I mean, that's what motivates us. And then of course, that's where we, that's where we make our money. So it's, you know, it's a business decision. Absolutely. Well, we've been going on long enough. I definitely appreciate you guys' patience and, and and taking such a large chunk of your time. I know you guys are real busy, but before we before we hop off, do you guys have any seminar dates or at least a location that people can go and and find the seminar dates and more information on what you guys have cooking? Yeah, so right now everything is getting advertised through our kennel Facebook pages and also on the methoddogtraining.com. Um, there is all the info for the seminars and then anything that we're going to do upcoming will be on that website right now. And we've done three successful phase one seminars and we're going to start offering the phase two and then we'll eventually get into wild bird camps and offer more stuff and then possibly some online stuff is coming. So just the methoddogtraining.com is where you're going to find most of your information. Awesome. Well, guys, I really enjoyed it. You'll have to keep me updated as you guys kind of unroll each phase and, and kind of make this your own thing. Uh, it, you know, I, I think it's commendable that you guys are stepping out, trying new stuff and and helping as many people as you are. It, it, it means a lot that y'all uh, came on here and shared your information. Appreciate your time. Yeah, we appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, sir. Well, there you have it, folks. This episode was presented by Standing Stone Supply, DT Systems, Onyx Hunt, Fonorize, and Upland Gun Company. And really, ever since earlier this year, the uh, the method came to light from Jordan Wells and Sonny Peacarts. I've had a few people writing in asking when I was going to get them on and, and do the typical, you know, kind of GDIY style deep dive, whatever you want to call it, into the uh, into the actual process. I'm glad that we finally uh, connected and we were able to make time to do this. I appreciate Jordan and Sonny both taking time out of their day uh, to kind of go over all this once again. You know, they've been on a a number of other podcasts and shows to where, you know, you got a good gist of it. But I told them, you know, I wanted to do an even deeper dive on some of this stuff and really kind of get behind the why on all of it, as well as how it differentiates itself from other methods. Because, you know, I was I was forthcoming with both of them before they came on on the episode to where I really wanted to get their take on, you know, them naming it the quote unquote, the method, you know, that's uh that's uh, a pretty lofty name in, in the circle of, of dog trainers. You know, everybody talks about a method or, or, you know, fill in the blank method, the Smith method, you know, whatever. And uh, I thought it was really interesting that that wasn't even the original name for the process. You know, Sonny said that it was supposed to be the mindset method and, and it just kind of got labeled as the method. So I thought that was pretty interesting uh, in today's day and age, how, how that got labeled. But, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, interesting pieces it throughout this method and, and a lot of it resonated with me for sure. You know, I, I have seen uh, quite a response from my own dogs kind of working 
within a lot of the principles of this method that's shared with a lot of other methods, such as the silent approach, and then just just the mindset starting at the vehicle and at the crate before you coming out and, and just getting the dog receptive and and in this right frame of mind to learn the learning mindset. It's, uh, it's huge. And so, uh, you know, I hope uh, everybody listening to this got to learn a little bit more and they appreciated it. So by all means, let me know what you thought about that. Let me know if you thought I missed any any important things on this. I'm sure that, you know, Jordan and or Sonny might be back on uh, again at one day. We've already been talking. I would love to check out one of their seminars in person one day. So uh, who knows? You know, they might be making a return in the future and, and uh, hearing more about this because I think uh, everything that I've heard from other people that have checked it out in person has been nothing but positive. So uh, uh, I enjoyed catching that uh, at some point one day. With all that being said, I'm actually out on the road. I've been out on the road for a couple weeks now hunting and, uh, you know, I'm recording this before I even leave. So uh, there, there's no telling what kind of trouble I'm getting into, but I hope everybody else is out there chasing birds, having fun. Uh, their bird dogs are getting plenty of experience and just, you know, they're racking up stories left and right already. So uh, with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and start wrapping this up. Please, by all means, if you find any enjoyment or value out of this podcast and you would like to offer up a voluntary contribution to our Patreon, please consider doing so at patreon.com forward slash gundog yourself. I can honestly say this podcast would not be rolling without the help of Patreon patrons. It means the world to us. Any kind of generous contribution uh, from people that just enjoy the show really means the world to me. And it lets me know that you guys are enjoying this. And then uh, I always love kind of getting to touch base and get to know the patrons a a little bit better. So I get to talk to a a number of the patrons on a, on a regular basis. If they have any questions that they think that I I can help them with, they, they hit me up with and, and I have a, uh, I've struck up quite a number of friendships through, uh, patrons i mean it, it some of them i actually talk to quite often i'm actually linking up with uh, one or two in the next week or so to go hunting so uh i don't know it, it's uh it, it's kind of like a growing into a little sense of community with that being said you know check that out if that's appealing to you uh whatsoever but again thanks as always for hitting download and play it does mean the world to me and we'll check back on the next episode thanks guys Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high grade lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup just after replace it again in a year go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want if you're considering changing your dog's food soon then be sure to check out yukanuba pro performance their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance they also now have the new puppy formula to help your pups start strong and live active when looking at all the different food options remember yukanuba to help power their ultimate performance Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. 
I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.